0: Well, good evening. This evening we're going to jump in. As I said, we have really three areas to tie up. And so I'll warn you right now as I'm trying to clumsily warn you already is because there's some loose ends, it may not flow as well as I like. And I labored over that, trying to get that flow to work out well. And I think we'll at least begin to understand it. We've got three categories of things to understand. And the first one is the church's ministries today. Uh, The Church's Ministries Today, it's kind of uh, the title, but it's also the subheading, and it's an important subheading. What is the church supposed to be doing? Because we live in a confused world, and we've just experienced a lot of this. We actually, about a year ago, not quite a year ago now, we were dealing with some of the critical issues that are affecting our society today. Uh, We dealt with the woke agenda and the CRT that's tied together with that, and all of the details of this... Is the church supposed to be about social issues, specifically social justice, because that's what it ultimately boils down to? And we see this repeated theme throughout the history of the church, especially over the last 200 years or so. We've seen this theme come back up over and over. Uh, Is the church ministry to be addressing social issues? The social imperative to seek justice has been a common drive in the church, and we've seen it over and over, especially in our western church. I don't know why it is so prevalent in our western church, but it is here. I invite you to turn over to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to wrestle with some of its workings on a practical level. We dealt with this on a theological level. We dealt with this in the sense of understanding how we as believers ought to interact with those who are engaged in it. We understood intersectionality. We understood woke, or at least as it pertains to the church, all about a year ago. But now we're, we're working through how do we interact on the church level. We're not talking about those who are in the lifestyle of these things. We're talking about how do we as believers in Jesus Christ begin to interact with a society that actually accuses us of not paying attention to the social ills and the societal ills that are around us. How do we deal with those kinds of things? Uh, Many of those who promote social justice in the church are misunderstanding the very kingdom we were addressing last week. That's our loose end. That's why we have to deal with it. Because when there's a misunderstanding in the church of the church's role in the kingdom, then there's a misunderstanding of what we should be doing and why we should be doing it. And this is essential because if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing as a church... How are you going to do what you're supposed to be doing? It's cyclical. If you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, you're probably not going to just trip into it. You're not going to trip into, oh, this is what we're actually going to be judged on doing. So we recognize that there's a misunderstanding of this. And most, social, most forms of social justice, and there's many that I'll talk about that are modern ones, there's a lot that are ancient ones, We'll talk a little bit about some of those as well. But most forms of social justice start with the intention of defining justice and then seeking to remedy the ills of specific segments that society faces, such as, as we saw recently, the Black Lives Matter movement. There is an effort in the church, and it's diminishing now, praise the Lord for this, but it's diminishing or that it is diminishing, but there was an effort in the church that would say, well, because there are those who do not have the economic, the socioeconomic structures, they don't have the family systems, they don't have the backgrounds, they don't have the opportunities, they don't have the wealth, that we have to actually add some sort of element to social justice for those who have to those who have not. And so we're going to redistribute those things, and in redistributing those things, we're actually going to make it easier for one to know the gospel and harder for another one to know the gospel. That's how social justice in the church works or doesn't work. That's how intersectionality and woke begin to impact such things like the, Mo- the Black Lives Matter movement and LGBTQAI, which is still one of those issues where this is still pressing against the church. In other words, because there is one who has more difficulty in life, that we have to change the gospel so that those of us who have had a better opportunity in life would actually have to do more. And so they're going to add to your salvation. It's not by grace through faith. They're going to say it's by grace through faith plus works. If you do enough good social things, then those who are of lesser economic, socioeconomic status or uh, environmental status or gender status they'll actually be able to receive the gospel, too. But then no one talks about what their gospel is, but it's works-based. Is that the gospel? No. So how does the church respond to this? Well, we addressed this a while back, but it's an important tie that we wrap up tonight. In both movements, the BLM, or Black Lives Matter movement, the LGBTQAI movement... In both movements, the gospel, according to their false doctrine, requires some sort of social justice component. It has intersectionality at its core, and it requires the gospel to be watered down. But notice what Paul says is the church's responsibility. I would say that that is totally wrong. That is the church trying to figure out who they are without consulting the Word of God. That's a dangerous place to be. So let us understand who we are in the body of Christ. And in order to do that, we go to Romans chapter 12. This is after the passages that we've been discussing over the recent weeks where we have Israel as the center hub of God's future plan and the church asking the question or believers of this dispensation asking the question, is God faithful to his promises? And that's chapter 8 through, uh, now we're into chapters 9 through 11, that's where we're talking Israelology, how does Israel fit into the picture yet? God is fulfilling his word to them. Now in Romans chapter 12, this is the chapter that begins with this critical statement of what we are to be doing as a church and as individuals. This is the answer. Verse 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect." We've looked into this over the recent weeks, so now let's go ahead and we'll skip down to verses 9 through 13. How does verses 1 and 2 get lived out? Verses 9 and following. This is the marks. um, The subheading in my Bible says marks of the true Christian. That's not inspired. And I would say it's more than that. This is the evidence of real faith. This is what the church should be about doing in verses 9 through 13, and actually the entirety of the rest of the chapter, but we're going to stop at verse 13. Scripture says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be consistent in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We're going to stop there for a moment. Believers are to be concerned about the welfare of one another in the body of Christ. One of the significant roles of what the church should be doing today is concern for one another. We should be loving one another. We should not be known like the church in Corinth was known for our divisions Some were of Apollo, some were of Cephas, some were of Christ. We should not be known as a church that is divided. The church should be united. And yet, you go outside the walls of the church and you talk to somebody who's ungodly, and their perspective of the church is divided, it's fractured, and yet it's the same. It's kind of an interesting conversation. They, they lump us in with the same groups of false teachers out there as well. So we are to be those who demonstrate a difference. The unbelieving world should see our love for one another and therefore be able to identify who's of the church and who's not. We're not very clear about it. We're Clear in our fighting, we're not with them. But do they know who we are with? Paul is very clear. We are to let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. So this ought to be our characteristic. This is what the church should be doing today. We should be seeking to outdo one another in love and good deeds, we're told in the Scriptures as well. Paul, in quick, rapid-fire instructions tells the church, or calls the church rather, to certain practices. And the last half of chapter twelve adds even more. So we really have, it's not quite divided as clean as I'm going to state it, but we also we have this recognition of not only the one another's, but also those outside. Notice what he says in verse fourteen. He says, "Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. There's a responsibility that the church has to stand firm. In the love for each other and brotherly affection to push each other to godliness and also to minister to those who do not yet know Christ as Savior, who are persecuting you. And Paul knew this firsthand. He understood this firsthand as he was the great persecutor of the church. Believers are called to Christ-like love, which requires us to do a few things. The first is we must call sin, sin. To let our love be genuine, we must call sin, sin. And Paul says, abhor what is evil. We cannot accept or tolerate evil specifically within the church. We must be those who are calling each other, leading each other, holding fast to what is good, loving each other in brotherly love, outdoing one another and showing honor, not slothful in our zeal to serve the Lord, but be fervent in spirit. These are all characteristics that should identify you in the body of Christ, and it should identify us as a church because of that. We're not given, or we ought not to be given, to petty petty differences that divide. We must recognize that there is a bigger picture out there and that is where we're going to head in just a few moments. It's also necessary that we understand this element of justice because there's a difference between biblical justice and social justice. And so before we pass on this uh, loose end and have it tied all up we need to understand that there's a difference. Look into verse 19 of chapter 12. Verse 19 says this, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Doesn't this fly counter to everything you've heard in the social justice movement? The social justice movement touts, Vengeance is mine, and they're not God. The social justice movement says, Vengeance is mine to hold, and I'm going to hold it against you until you repay. And when the church begins to play that kind of game, the church loses its identity because it's no longer serving the one true God, it's serving themselves. And so, beloved, when we understand what the church's ministry is today, let us not believe that it's social justice. That is not the ministry of the church. That is what many outside the church and many inside the church want you to believe but social justice is not the ministry of the church. And the moment you make that stand that it's not, you will be attacked. You will be attacked for this. And so it is very necessary for us to understand that we need to be loving one another, encouraging one another, pushing each other towards godliness. And so all of this wraps up. And what is the message then? If social justice isn't our message, what is the message? Jesus did not come, and I I'm very appreciative of the clarity in this. In fact, we see it throughout the pages of Scripture, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old. Jesus did not come to earth for the sake of liberating the poor and impoverished. Did you notice that? Did Jesus heal? Yes. But did he come to give bags of gold coins to the poor? No. Could he have? Yes. If the issue was poverty, he could have solved poverty. It's fascinating to me that the nation of Israel is told that if they obey the law, there would be no poor among them. But in the same breath that the Lord is speaking to Moses that statement, he also says two chapters later in the same vein that there will always be poor among Israel. The Lord is not about resolving poverty as far as we believe the Lord should resolve poverty. He's not about liberating the poor or bringing some sort of balance and equality that we would view as equality or equity as it's often used in our social justice world. Those are not what the Lord came to do and they are not what the church should be doing. But there is something that the Lord came to do. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19 verse 10, That he came to seek and save that which was lost. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says that those who are lost are those who are poor in spirit. So was there poverty? Spiritual poverty. But not financial poverty. It is because man is totally depraved that Christ came. That's Man is poor spiritually. Faithfulness to the Great Commission is not engaging in political activism. That statement, and I'll I'll read the entirety of it, this statement, Faithfulness to the Great Commission is not engaging in political activism and emphasizing social action. That statement was written in 1995, far before this most recent trends that are happening. Faithfulness to the Great Commission is not engaging in political activism and emphasizing social action. Jesus' earthly ministry was to provide salvation for those who are without the righteousness of God and to liberate the spiritually impoverished. We recognize then that as a church, it is not our responsibility to solve social ills. So the church's ministry today is not to go and find all the social ills that are out there. Should we minister when there's a need? Should we? When possible, yes. But that is not why we're here. That is not why we're here. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, where we're going to spend a little time between First and 2 Thessalonians uh, over the next two points. But 2 Thessalonians, and chapter 3, There are two statements here, two warnings to the church as Paul is signing off in his second letter to the Thessalonians. And notice what he says here, because one of the attacks that comes against the church is, well, you could be doing something more about this. And churches have done astounding things. When I was in Chicago, there was a Swedish Baptist hospital. The Swedish Baptists had come together and built a significant hospital, and they were still running it. There are orphanages, there are, are great ministries that are happening, but that is not our purpose. Those are the benefits of knowing Christ, the compassion of Christ being shared, but Christ didn't come to heal everybody. He came to seek and save those who are lost. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, the scripture says this, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he might be ashamed. There's a warning. We are not to be lazy in our serving the Lord. That means a Swedish Baptist hospital or those who really know Christ as Savior gathering together and doing something significant on the social elements of our world, the social ills, is a good thing as long as it represents Christ and Him crucified, risen and coming again. So when you walk into the Swedish Baptist Hospital in Chicago, although it just recently got bought out, but before that you'd walk in and there's the gospel right there on one of the walls. 1 Corinthians 15, right there, painted on the wall as you walk in. Later on, as you're leaving, one of the walls, as you're leaving out one of the doors to the parking lot, says, go therefore into all the earth, make disciples, Matthew 28. So we have these reminders that it is... Through the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can do these social things and we ought to do them well and with fervency. We ought not to be lazy just waiting in our chairs for the Lord to return. Let us not be found as those. But it is necessary. We don't get to dictate what is good. It is also necessary to pay attention to the second warning. Doing good is what is found in God's word. And so when we read this in verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Believer, let us hold one another accountable to doing good with diligence. May we not be lazy, but also that the doing good is not by our definition. That doing good is by God's definition. It's what God says is doing good. Let us hold fast to Those truths as well. We do not get to dictate what is good. Therefore, when the church says, well, we're going to add social justice, we flee from that fellowship. Why would we flee from that fellowship? Because if we're adding social justice, we're changing the gospel or we're attempting to change the gospel. And that's not what the church does today. The church does not do that. So what else? As we understand the church's ministry today, we understand the urgency. This is, these are the urgent things that are happening in the church. There's many more that we could discuss, but we've discussed them before. We've discussed a lot of them before, and we will continue to do so. So we're leaving this a little bit open ended as we end this point, and we recognize that the church also has a responsibility in relationship to prophecy. So the church and prophecy becomes our next point where we have to draw some things together. And this is from the morning service on this morning, but also in picking up some of the details that we left behind last week in the kingdom discussion. And so the first element is the church and prophecy, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, are not going to usher in the kingdom. We will not do that. That is not going to take place. And there have been many efforts throughout the history of the church where that has been attempted and utterly failed every time. So not only do we have Scripture that doesn't support that ideal, we also have the practical elements where that has not been what has taken place when the church has attempted to take over and bring about a utopia, and it fails every time. And so when it fails every time, what is it that we are to be anticipating? What is it that we as a church are to be doing? You and I should be looking forward to the imminent rapture of the church. That's where we were in 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning. You and I are looking forward to the events when Christ will come to meet His church in the air and the wrath of God will begin to be poured out in the tribulational period. That doesn't mean that it's back-to-back. It doesn't mean that the rapture will happen and instantly the tribulation begins, although that seems to be the way Scripture is leaning. Uh, But the Scripture is quiet on that issue, largely. And so we recognize there are two different events, the rapture and then the tribulation. With the rapture and the tribulation taking place, that is when the wrath of God will be poured out on humanity through the tribulational period, and that's what we are reminded, or at least the rapture portion, is what we're reminded of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So turn back to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And remember, Paul is offering a pastoral compassion and love for those who have lost those who have passed away. So there's a suffering that is there. But notice what he says in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This morning I didn't spend a lot of time on verse 18. I just barely mentioned it, but I want to go back to verse 18. We understand the theological implications of what has taken place up to this point. Paul is declaring that there is a coming day where Christ will meet his church in the air. And as I said this morning, that's a John chapter 14. That's the imagery of Christ preparing a place for us that where he is we may be also. And so there's the imagery that has taken place there of a Jewish wedding that is happening, a Jewish wedding celebration, the wedding suppers. But verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words, is more than just a compassionate platitude. It's not a compassionate platitude, it's far deeper than that. When we are to be encouraging with one another if we are to be encouraging one another with these words we are to be pushing each other reminding each other that Christ is coming again very soon and the death of every single believer pushes us closer and closer and closer to the time where Christ will rapture his church and so it should be a cry to obedience it should be a cry of compassion It should be a cry of grace and mercy, and it should be a cry of recognizing God's great love for us. All of that combined, that is the church's role in prophecy. And we're going to talk about that in the final point as we understand how the church is to interact with prophecy. We're going to talk about more of those details in just a moment. But I'm leaving it here at the rapture for the church because you and I participate in none of the kingdom after that. We'll participate in the eternal kingdom, which I'll define in just a few moments. But we will not participate as uh, as people on this earth. We're going to actually have a role in the kingdom, but it's not going to be as inhabitants of the kingdom. As inhabitants of the millennial kingdom. And so that's a very important distinction for us, because if we get this right, it helps us in the first point. If we understand that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are not about bringing in a utopia or bringing in the kingdom, then we're going to stop doing that work, and we're going to start being more faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and reaching the lost, because we know that Peter, what Peter says, the Lord is patient and waiting for the last one to come to know Christ as Savior. So if we want to see Christ return, we're going to be sharing the gospel more and sharing the gospel to those who do not yet know Christ as Savior so that Christ would return. Not that we can change the timeline, but wouldn't it be wonderful to be the one to lead the last one before the rapture to Christ? You're leading them, you've given them the message, they've come to know Christ as Savior and boom, the rapture. That I would love to see. So our motivation when we understand the rapture is to be pushing towards the gospel. We don't have time to solve all of the social ills of the world. We have only enough time to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples, that is the gospel, and to train them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. That is our marching orders. That is doing what Paul says as we end the Lord's table that we would be proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. And when we do those things, then we will recognize that we're looking forward with great anticipation to be ready when Christ, re- when Christ raptures His church. When Christ comes and gets us, we're going to be ready. That's the zeal of following Christ and serving Him. And so we must understand that you and I are not going to be inhabitants of the Davidic kingdom, of the millennial kingdom. We are going to be inhabitants of the universal kingdom because we already are. The universal kingdom is all that God controls. He is sovereign. He holds kings and kingdoms as water in His hands. He's the one who establishes kings, and He removes kings. A couple critical texts for us here that we don't have time tonight to look into, but write them down. The scriptures reveal God is ruler of the whole world in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. That is an important text for us. In Psalm 145, verse 13, is. Uh, the psalmist proclaims the same. We see certainly in Daniel's testimony, in Daniel's dream, and we mentioned this a little bit last week, but I wanted to go to Daniel and spend a little time here. So turn back to the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And interpreting the dream for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, he reveals That God is the one who's over all. Daniel chapter two verse thirty-seven, the scripture says this: as Daniel is preparing to interpret the dream, he has laid out the dream. He's given the dream back to uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, and now in verse thirty-seven, he's going to give a warning, to issue a warning to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, "And you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might." And the glory. And then he defines who he is. The warning is this. Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're the greatest king of all. But there's a king who gave you your power. There's a king greater than you. Wouldn't it be great if our current politicians understood this truth? That it wasn't even the people who gave you the power. It wasn't you and all of your abilities and capabilities. And your ability to hide and conceal It was God who gave you your power, and God can remove it too. And God does remove it for his purposes. So we recognize that there is this universal kingdom. And so when we talk about kingdom, that's not usually what we're talking about. When someone brings up the kingdom of God, they're not usually talking about this universal kingdom. They're usually talking about the millennial kingdom that they have twisted and not seeing it as a literal kingdom of a literal throne in the literal line, uh, throne of David, in the literal land of Israel, they're seeing it as more of the universal kingdom. But that's a misunderstanding. And so we recognize that the Davidic or millennial kingdom that will take place is that millennial kingdom we talked about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 9 through uh, 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 5. There's a thousand years there. And that is an important time frame where the Lord will rule Christ will rule on the throne of David over the literal land of Israel. But church, you're not one of those receiving the blessings of that. Let us not confuse and believe that we can bring in this utopia and once we get to the utopia, Christ will return and sit on the throne of David. Christ will return and he will sit on the throne of David without your help. Without you doing it. Without you preparing the way. Because this dispensation will end as every other dispensation before it has ended. And that is in man's rebellion. Man's continued rebellion against God. And that will be culminated in the tribulation events. Specifically the last half of the tribulation. Where the Antichrist and the false prophet are deceiving those that they possibly can in the world. Which is the majority of the inhabitants of the world at the time. We recognize the millennial kingdom, then, is not for the church. So what is it that you and I should be doing about the millennial kingdom? Well, we've already answered this. What we should be doing is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be proclaiming what Christ has done in His crucifixion and His resurrection. That's our responsibility. We should certainly be praying for the nation of Israel. But we do not condone her sin. We pray for her redemption. We support Israel in as much as we're able to do so. And we long for the day when Christ will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. But for today... We recognize that we will be more passive participants in the Millennial Kingdom. And that is because we'll have completed the marriage supper of the Lamb and you will be an eternal being by that point. Enjoying eternity. You're already an eternal being. But you'll be enjoying the benefits of eternity. And so we look forward to the Millennial Kingdom, but it is not for you. It is for the nation of Israel. It's not for the church. It's not for the church. One more key point before we are concluding this evening, and it is this. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What does prophecy in the life of the church do? Now, there's going to be a point here where there's going to be a lot of writing for you to do. And I'm going to hit these kind of quick in just a moment. There's going to be several bullet points for us, and uh, I can... I'm just going to give you one or two passages for each of them. We're going to move through them somewhat rapidly for the, because of the sake of time tonight, wrapping this all up. But what is prophecy in the life of the church? What is the value of prophecy in the life of the church? What is it that prophecy does for the church? If we don't participate in anything other than the rapture, why do we have all the information on the tribulation? Why do we have all the information of in the millennial kingdom? that we have, both from Daniel and from Ezekiel in the Old Testament and Revelation in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians and 1 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. Why do we have all this information? First, the prophecy elements that we know in Scripture should cause us to stay ready. They should cause us to stay ready. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the Scripture there says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, believer, you should be one who, according to this text, and this is that passage that we've been dancing around all day, and we've been talking about the resurrection of the dead, and Paul asks a question in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is resurrected, then can't you be This is flying straight in the face of the Judaizers, specifically the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And there were many in the church, even as far away as Corinth, who were beginning to view that when you're dead, you're dead. There is nothing after that, that you cease to exist. And Paul is saying, no, that is not true. When you come to know Christ as Savior, you have the benefits of the resurrection just as much as Christ revealed it. He's the first fruits." If you do not know Christ as Savior, you don't cease to exist, you are brought into a place of torment and suffering for all eternity. You're alive yet dead. So Paul's not backing off of the instruction, and instead he's using it to motivate the believer to push them to understand that we are to be those who are giving thanks to God because we have victory in Christ. That's verse 57. And then in verse 58 he says, Because we have victory in Christ... Let us be immovable, unshakable. No matter what's happening in our world today, we are not those who are swayed one way or the other because we are those who are to stay ready, to stay diligent, to be ready for action. It is interesting to see as Israel's history kind of illustrates this for us. Israel's history has been fascinating in their dealings with Hamas. In the last 15 years or so, really the last 10 years, Israel hasn't done a lot with Hamas. They had gone in, kind of cleaned Hamas out of the Gaza Strip, and then they thought that they had completed the job, and so they weren't as diligent anymore. They fell asleep. And when they fell asleep, October 7th happened. They weren't diligent anymore. That's a different scenario than the scenario that we're in, but it illustrates the truth that you and I must stay ready. You and I must stay ready. We do not want to fall asleep. We want to be those who are aware of the dangers. We want to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that when we're working for the Lord, our labor is not in vain. We're not allowing each other to grow lazy. We're not allowing the characterization that the world is thrusting at us to be true. Our labor abounds in the work of the Lord, knowing that it is not in vain. And then it should live with, we should live with anticipation Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 11. And this is that familiar passage where we have the gospel that is given to us in verse 3 and verse 4. And as we move all the way down, and very clearly he illustrates this, this is anticipation, but then he uses it as part of his illustration, part of his testimony. And he says in verses 7 and following, then he appeared to, that is, the excuse me, the Lord, he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all is, Maybe not that you're a persecutor of the church, hopefully not that, but beside that, the work that you were able to do was God working through you. Is that your diligence and anticipation of meeting your Savior face to face? That is what prophecy reminds the church to do. When we think of prophecy in the life of the church, that is what it does. Briefly, I'm going to give you the next few. These are actually from Paul Ben Ware. He's written several books on the subject of understanding prophecy in the end times, and he gives us a handful of these, and I want just to give them to you. This is in closing. just want you to see them and understand them. First, biblical prophecy understood and embraced gives needed help to the struggle against personal sin. Amen to that. Knowing that you're going to, at any moment, be ushered into the arms of your Savior changes the way that you view lust, changes the way that you view theft, cheating. It changes the way that you think, knowing that you could be ushered into the arms of your Savior. Hebrews 12.1, uh, we are to be aware of the sin which so e- easily entangles us. And so prophecy reminds us of that. Again, another passage here is Philippians 3.20. So biblical prophecy understood and embraced gives needed help in the struggle against personal sin. Second, biblical prophecy reminds the believer that he will give an account of his life and will gain or lose reward as a result of how he lives. This is First Corinthians, the early portion of First Corinthians, chapter four, I believe, chapter three or four, where we are reminded that the believer will give an account of his life, and they will gain or lose reward as a result of how he lives or she lives. Third, biblical prophecy provides a valuable mindset in times of trial and temptation. Again, we're reminded, I'm going to go here for us briefly tonight, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, we've already referenced verse 1, now let me reference verse 2. He says this, Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we recognize biblical prophecy provides us a valuable mindset in times of trial and temptation, we're mindful of Christ and what He did. We're mindful of all that uh, was there, despising the shame, the price that was paid for you and I, and looking forward to the day when we will see our Savior. Next, we have biblical prophecy gives protection to believers from false teachers and their false teachings. That's what the social justice movement needs more of is the correction of reminding us of biblical prophecy because Christ will hold us accountable. James reveals to us that teachers will incur a more strict judgment at the time of the judgment because of the influences that they have over people. And there's going to be a lot of even believers who are going to struggle with that statement out of the book of James. But we're mindful of two passages out of the book of 2 Timothy. The first one, is 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4, and the other one is 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. So 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, reminding us of the need for protection. That God will judge the false teacher. 2 Peter 3.11 reminds us of the next one, and that is that biblical prophecy provides a framework for the believer to prioritize life better and make better decisions. Uh, Are you wasting time, believer? Are you wasting time? We don't have time to waste. 2 Peter 3.11 reminds us of that truth. And finally, biblical prophecy provides hope, which is a key element to establishing a biblical worldview he gives us the answer to the end this past week i've got a friend i think i've mentioned her before Uh, she was my former secretary when i was in westchester at westchester bible church and now she works for a jewish company and their job in this company is to help relocate jews from around the world back in the land of israel that's one of their main tasks and so they have all kinds of efforts to do that. Well, right now, obviously, there's problems. She wrote me the other day, and she said, I'm struggling today because in our staff meeting yesterday, I discovered I'm the only one in my office that is not taking uh, the CBD gummies because there's such a high anxiety level. People are trying to diminish the anxiety. Every single person in her office is taking drugs to reduce the anxiety. She said, I believe I'm the only believer in this group. And I wrote her, and I said, you're the only one with hope. Show them the hope that you know the answers of what is going to take place. Because she had written to me the other day, In a lengthy email, she said, I'm discovering that everyone that I meet in my workplace is afraid because they do not know how this ends. And I said, you may not know how it ends today, but you know how it ends. Tell them the truth. And by telling them the truth, give them the hope that Jesus will do all that was promised in the Old Testament beloved that is something that we as a church can do today we can demonstrate it today let us be found faithful in doing that let's close our entire ecclesia series down tonight in a word of prayer our gracious heavenly father we thank you that in understanding biblical prophecy and understanding the role of the church that we have the great opportunity to be hope and light to a lost and dying world Lord, we pray for those who we mentioned just now who are working for this Jewish company in Chicago who are diligent and faithful in proclaiming Christ to those who are lost in the same company. Lord, I pray that you would allow maybe just the one to be a light of hope and reminder that you know the beginning from the end you've established the course of this world that as this member of the church who's not jewish in any way would have the opportunity to be bold in demonstrating the love of christ the love of the messiah to the people who are still the people of god lord i praise you for the opportunity that we have tonight to study these matters that are related to the church and as we kind of tied them up. We knew that it would be somewhat disjointed, potentially, but I pray that nonetheless it would have flowed for our understanding, that we would apply it for your glory and for our good. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for this evening. Bless us as we depart from here. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.